Jake, radically early compared to how long anime had been really around as a serialized, like, kind of art entertainment form, because of Star Wars, basically, there was yeah. all of these people trying to find any kind of science fiction content of any kind. They had started developing, like, filmic stuff, like, Go Nagai was the main one, right? Yep. Going a guy and Lazy Matsumoto. Yes, and then Yoshiki Tomino did the real robot thing. Yeah, with Gundam. Yeah, with Gundam. And so in a couple of markets, we got Robotech, which was um, a bastardization of uh, Macross, Orgus, and there was another series, and they all got wrapped into one. And then there was weird stuff like uh, Guy King and Getter Robo G. Yep. And they got they got turned into these day of the week serials. I remember the last podcast you were talking about Robotech and Harmony Gold and all that stuff. Yeah. And it triggered a childhood memory because I think they screened that here as well. Because like the way I got into anime and a lot of the kids my age was through this morning TV show on before school called Cheese TV. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was like three half hour shows. And there was an awesome run where it was like Sailor Moon, Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z. And at one point it was Digimon, Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z. And I think uh, sort of towards the end of Cheese TV's run, before it turned into this horrible toasted TV thing, um, they aired Robotech as well. And that's nice. So that's funny because this morning, and I kid you not, I pressed play on the first episode of Sailor Moon for my eight-year-old daughter who is obsessed with anime. If you get the torrent for like all the Sailor Moon stuff, it's the original toy stuff. So that's 92. Yeah. So... We're a lot older than you, Jake. <laughs> um, so we, we, we would be talking almost exactly 10 years before you that we had this bizarre thing in New England where uh, at that time, Jason was living in Plymouth, almost like down the street from me, I think, right? Yep. We had this experience of these shows, these chopped up uh, anime shows getting marketed here. And then it kind of burned out. It turned into like Mask and Centurions and all the animation got done by American studios and it sucked. And then yeah. there was this huge resurgence in the 90s when we were in college and when you would have been watching it sort of as a kid, where it, sudden, mm -hmm. it suddenly became a totally different, way bigger thing. The reason we have Jason on the phone is he's in charge of essentially the only American portal left to showcase this genre that has in various ways kind of jumped in and out of a number of probably three generations now of people's yeah. lives in different ways. You know, if you did you get into anime around that time, Jake, when they when you had Cheese TV showing stuff like Sailor Moon and, and Digimon and all that? At the time, it didn't seem any different than any other cartoon. Like it it obviously had a very different visual style, but there was something like mentally that didn't differentiate it from any of that stuff. It was just cartoons. One night, uh, my dad showed me Neon Genesis Evangelion. And I was like, holy fuck, what is this? Like, there's this kid who's like my age and he kind of looks like Ash from Pokemon, but he's piloting this giant horrifying looking robot monster and he's getting like eaten or something. And he's like drowning in this pool of what looks like blood. Like I became instantly infatuated with this idea that there was more to anime than just Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z to the point where I would like interrupt my 10th or 11th birthday party Everyone wanted to like play around on scooters or like make funny home videos and stuff. And I was like, no, 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 guys, Evangelion's on. Like, we got to turn the TV on because I <laughs> want to catch the next episode. My dad was like, Jake, this is not the time. You should like be a social, well developed human being. And uh, I was really pissed. <laughs> When I was listening to the last podcast, you said that you'd been doing Toonami for like almost 20 years. Is that right? 
This is the 20th year. In fact, yeah, this right. year is, tw- is Toonami's 20th anniversary. Yeah. I don't want to lead the discussion on what goes on now because, A, you're like the biggest expert on the fucking planet to talk to about it. But also, I feel like I'll just come off like a, a totally checked out, you know, old idiot. <laughs> Because, because like my kids are, I mean, kids are sort of checking in on some of this stuff. And I just feel like it does feel slight to me in a way having come up with, and again, it's, it's a financial thing. It's a cultural thing. I don't know. A lot of techniques have been lost because it went, you know, when the industry went fully digital, a lot of things changed, some of them not for the better and some of them for the better. So to me, it's just different. It's just a different thing. You know, it's, it's, it's easier to make something. And it's easier to tell a story that's maybe more unusual. Like to us in the 90s, it seemed really unusual at the time. But now you can have a show. I mean, the hot show this season is Yuri on Ice, which is a love story about two men who are figure skaters. Yeah. The sheer variety of what you can watch now really represents the full depth of what anime can be, which is literally anything. You can watch chamber dramas, romance shows. Total fantasy, hard sci-fi, that to me is actually better. And I think it allows for a level of expression in terms of individual expression, like maybe altruism that anime didn't have as much back then because it was so hard to mount a production and so costly and so time consuming. And everyone, the way the industry worked with everyone doing apprenticeships and required so many years of foreknowledge that you weren't even allowed to open your mouth about an idea unless you were already a manga creator or unless you had years of experience. Now, there's something to be said for that too. But for me, it's like, yeah, we've lost some of that and we've traded out for this other stuff, which is just as good to me, but in a totally different way. So I can see why someone would look at the older stuff and go, oh, I like that better. It has a different feel. But I can also see why someone would look at the massive breadth and quality of stuff you can get now and say, well, I prefer it now because if I want to watch a show about a detective that's beautifully animated, I can. If I want to watch a sort of El Hazard type show that's a fantasy like I grew up with, they still make those. They make Attack on Titan. They make Sword Art Online. They make all these shows and they may feel dumb to us or to you now, but that's because you're not a kid anymore when you're watching it. You know what I mean? Shows like One Piece that are, to me, just as good as anything we grew up on, if not better. So to me, I just think it's different. It's not that it's better. It's just there are better things about it. Well, I, And there were better things about the past. Well, the, you know? the, when you mentioned One Piece, One Piece is outstanding. And it, to me, One Piece carries the torch for Ranma and for all of the great, like, well-written, fleshed-out universes that all of those series, like Evang- Evangelion, we would say Evangelion, Jake, sorry, we have poor understanding of English here. Um <laughs> You know, and and bubblegum crisis and and everything else. The 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 one piece is is totally character based, and they can they're they're expert at just dropping in new fully formed characters. Well, this is all it's relatively old. I mean, it's been going on forever, but um, years and years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I'm just talking about when when you talk about new series, they do seem to be sort of extremely topical. Like just to add to Jason's point, not only is there like so much more anime now, but it's never been easier to find the stuff that resonates with you and avoid the stuff that doesn't. Like back in the day where you had to sort of 
buy and ship, especially in Australia, these really, really expensive uh, VHSs or whatever just to see anime or hope that it would air late at night on some channel that your parents wouldn't allow you to stay up to watch. Uh, now there's like Crunchyroll, uh, Hulu, I think, are doing anime as well. There's stuff on Netflix. There's also like a swath of high def illegal streaming sites. There's this kind of cottage industry around stoking anime fandom, like My Anime List and Anime News Network uh, and like Annie Chart, where you can go and find like very easily digestible rundowns of all the shows that are airing in any given season. There are fewer like contemporary people in anime that you can point to and say they're like the top guns in the same way that we talk about Mamoru Oshii or uh, the guy who did Akira, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo. Like those guys, it's so much harder to sort of point to those people. But there's also people like Akiyuki Shimbo, who is doing a lot of like incredibly pioneering work in anime that is still going on. And Tatsuya Oshii, who's, uh, Oishi, who's working on this new series of movies called Gizumonogatari. Uh, and the people who were doing like the rebuild series of Evangelion, who were assistant directors on the original run of Evangelion. And then you've got like your Mokoto Shinkais, who did Your Name, which is like the post Ghibli anime success of the year, this anime movie, which is just explosively huge. One aspect of this that, that Jason is going to be expert at speaking to is the fact that in anime, people worked, they were in their 60s. You know, like the guy who did Tenshi Muyo and then goes on to do El Hazard, they're like 58. You know, this this is not like a, a medium driven by kids at all in the past. And there was this issue with apprenticeship and how do you break in and... and it blew up laterally where you had tons of sort of technicians and people working on these things, but you had a real cultural issue with deference to major masters and, and authority figures. So is that something you, you feel has changed, Jason? It's changed less than you might imagine just because the nature of, of Japanese cultures that change happens very slowly. So you will still find that model existing um, but now I have found that young directors and up-and-coming young writers are being given more of a chance to step into a, a role where they're writing a show or, or directing a show, which I think 20 years ago would be almost unheard of. There's definitely been more of a flexibility to let younger people who are less experienced but have ideas that are exciting into the fold as opposed to before where it was sort of like you know the only way you could really do that was manga like you could write a manga and if that manga became a hit you could be a young person and sort of control your destiny and now you can kind of you just have to be really good or or somebody has to notice you and think you're really good and that is more of a, a path than it used to be. This is just in my personal experience. So one thing here that is like a total hot take attack, but you can tell me if someone has already written the piece about this, but one of the overarching themes that I don't see discussed in plain terms frequently enough is that all of the modern era American studio superhero movies since 2000 are totally fucking based on the pacing and the storytelling of anime. And it peaked for me with Guardians of the Galaxy, which is basically a fucking anime movie. And yeah, I mean, I don't think any, I haven't, I haven't seen anyone write about that take, but I think that's a good take. <laughs> all the Marvel shit and everything they've done 
the, everything they do is totally based on how you introduce a superhero in the language of anime. Like the Wonder Woman reveal scene. Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Dawn of Justice. <laughs> God, that movie was such a piece of shit. Um, but, you know, they, they did great with the Wonder Woman character, but that's about it. People did mention this when the Superman, when the Zack Snyder Superman came out. There's especially a scene where the Zod soldiers beat the shit up out of a bunch of army guys. And it's totally just Dragon Ball Z, like the way they're moving, <laughs> the way they're like they're they're moving so fast. You can't really see them. I did see when that movie came out. I saw a lot of people talking about, well, that was just Dragon Ball Z like that's. And I think that's because these movies at this point are mostly animation. I mean, of course, they're using actors, but all the action is basically CG. When you're doing CG action, you're doing animated action. So you're looking at the influences there. And really, American cartoons do action like shit most of the time. Yep. So you're going to look at anime. So then now the thing that's going to bring this all together is Spider-Man Homecoming, which is going to get an awkward teenage kid. <laughs> and it's going to be fucking boilerplate anime with some emo, you know, fucking get management in the soundtrack. To me, <laughs> to me, this this take is about to happen. And yet again, I'm going to be out in front um, because to me, the Spider-Man movie is is like tipping the fucking glass over like it was obvious enough with guardians but now it's like wide open this is going to be sensitive you know like kind of semi scrawny cute crackly voice you know the whole kick-ass thing i feel like it's really like the loop is closing on mainstream american absorption of all the lessons that it took them forever to learn from anime don't forget that they're both mediums that are derived largely from comics the japanese have been making comics move for a very long time since manga is a huge industry there and has been since post-World War II. And that anime itself, you know, has been tied inextricably with manga since day one. Whereas American cartoons have not been inextricably tied with comic books, although of course they have been tied together, but not like the way manga is tied with anime. So for me, I think part of it too is that they're both coming from a medium where you're making pictures move that were in a comic. Certainly the Japanese have been doing it better longer than we have. And so if you're going to look at how you want to make a sequence come alive from a comic, you're going to kind of take the lessons that they've given you, even if you don't know you're doing it. Yeah, well, you just totally fucking deflated my whole thing. So I'm done. Jake, what do you got? <laughs> An asshole. Such a know-it-all. Oh, I run Toonami. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I just, I, I just think back to this one, this uh, like amazing gif that I think. What was that series, The Boondocks? That cartoon. Yeah. Was mm -hmm. that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a scene in that which is being juxtaposed against a scene from the early episodes of Naruto. Uh, where like two characters in the boondocks are fighting and they used exactly the same animations from this one early fight uh, in Naruto. Like I think maybe during the tournament arc of like yeah. the earliest episodes. Um, and I thought that was like, that kind of blew my mind when I first saw it because I, I didn't realize that American animation would take so liberally and pay that kind of homage to anime in that way. But I guess like Naruto is, I, I'm sure, like you said, you know, Dragon Ball Z, those series would have huge presence in the minds of people animating in the West today, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron Magruder, who, who make, who, you know, created the boondocks was a huge anime fan and very consciously set the show up to, I mean, he wanted it to look like an anime, which is why it was animated in Japan by Sony. Mm -hmm. 
but all but he very consciously wanted it to echo and reflect the things he liked which and and anime and naruto in particular was one of them but yeah a really direct like homage which you st- you hadn't really seen i i still hadn't seen that many people quote directly from an anime like that like just proudly as opposed to straight up just kind of stealing it (laughs) anime didn't you would think like you would have thought that at some point the big bang theory or one of these stupid mainstream american sitcoms at some point you would have thought that there would have been you know what i mean i just i I, yeah there hasn't been like spot placement or nods to the fact that anime was like the the sort of thing that culture geeks were totally into it maybe kind of did in the 90s for a bit but it generally doesn't make the leap to into being cool like there's not a high fidelity movie for otakus <laughs> no yeah and like <laughs> the only cool quote-unquote cool people who ever admit to liking anime are rappers yeah and that's and yeah. that's yeah. because they were <clears throat> young black kids sitting at home watching an aspirational show about a dude you know fighting everything and learning to kick ass i mean that's certainly over the years with toonami people come up to me and say when i was a kid my dad ignored me, I couldn't do shit, and I used to watch Dragon Ball Z and dream of making myself more powerful and better. Like, it's a really, really common story that I hear. But those are, like, the only cool people that ever admit to being anime fans, even now. How hard has this been for you, literally being the only platform? I mean, Jay, you mentioned that Netflix is getting involved and and they're starting to try and pick up serials. When you go on Netflix, you know, they have tons of Pokemon series and other things, because my kids are all surfing it now. But... They tend to be like super neutral, basic. Some of them are. There's a couple that are like critically acclaimed in there. I mean, probably nobody's watching them, but like they have some surprisingly contemporary choices in there. Like Australian Netflix, at least, like uh, Kuramukuro, uh, even like Seven Deadly Sins. I mean, that's, I guess, pretty basic. A lot of them are these kind of like what what they call shonen animations, which is like anime made for teen boys. But, like, Arjun, which was a series that was really, really popular among, like, quote-unquote, the anime weeb community last year is on Netflix. And I was really surprised to see that. Like, it didn't surprise me at all that Pokemon would be in there because it has such an intense reach in the West. But these shows that only, like, huge anime nerds care about are on Netflix. One thing I'd want, I'd be curious to ask you about jason would be perfect hair forever yeah (laughs) so (laughs) it it was a spinoff of space ghost right yeah it came out of space ghost it was created by matt harrigan who was a writer on space ghost for many years and 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 uh mike lazo right and of course yeah lazo uh well you get to call him that (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah it's it space ghost was in every episode it was like a big crossover move um and it was a joke on there was a dragon ball z joke because the the boy's name was like uh what was it i can't remember the guy's the kid's name but i mean it was one big takeoff on anime really and there was a master roshi character yeah yeah and it was tied in with space ghost but they you know they actually it was always weird to me because anime fans that i know that have seen it which there are not many people who have seen that show um they liked it the dudes who made it are not really anime fans that's the crazy thing like they don't they don't dislike it either they just thought wow it would be interesting to do a parody of this wow like they aren't huge anime fans which i always thought was weird mf doom was in that wasn't he yes he is an anime fan yeah um he's a rapper so like honestly there are not many rappers that you would ever meet that won't be 
fans of it, the very minimum Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. Like, I'm just trying to understand where you guys were at that point, you know, with Toonami. So at that point, Toonami was 2006, 2007. Toonami was dying. It was on Saturday nights. They had kind of forced us to go younger. So we were shown a whole bunch of like really kiddie stuff. And they weren't really advertising much for us. So Toonami was going away. Adult Swim had only been around for five or six years and was showing anime the whole time. Adult Swim started showing anime from the first broadcast. And they basically were showing the stuff that was too adult for Toonami. So they were showing Cowboy Bebop. And they were bringing on shows like Read or Die and, you know, just whatever contemporary action anime and they usually weren't promoting it much. They were just sort of throwing it up and it wasn't doing well at all. Like it didn't do well for years and years and years. They always spent a little bit of money getting a couple new shows a year, but they never went crazy and they never made it sort of a big block or had a big push behind it. They just always had stuff on, but it was not really taking off. So in Australia, Jake, in the two thousands, Like, I'm trying to imagine what would have been available to you apart from, like you said, buying incredibly overpriced imports of Mm. probably five-year-old series or whatever. It was a lot of those shonen shows. Like, Full Metal Alchemist was a huge one. When I first watched it, they'd just put out the, like, original series. So, like, five years later or something like that, they went back and redid it. Because when they were first doing it, the manga hadn't finished being produced, I think. So this original series, it starts off very similar, but then goes in this wildly different direction. And then they did this remake called Brotherhood later, which was very faithful to the manga, which is way more dense. But I think like it lacks some of the emotional heft. And it's the only time that I can think of that an anime has deviated from its source material like that. And it's really paid off. Because a lot of the time you get these manga that are like showing some commercial promise and they'll turn it into an anime, but the deadline for the anime will run short of the manga being finished. So they'll tack on this terrible ending that attempts to tie up all those loose ends and it's it sucks. It's like it always results in like the power of friendship wins the day. Oh man, that was the whole that everything we grew up on was done that way. They fucking slammed that shit. (laughs) It was always so bad. They would just be like, uh and you know, Poochie had to go back to his home planet. Every every anime series that we got was great until they were like, oh I gotta fucking end it. So it'd be like everyone, you know, dies or the spaceship blows up and they just cut it right in. Viz was in control of a lot of this stuff, and it was really weird, because this is a British company. We would get these crappy compilation VHSs that were totally fucking, like, they would just cherry-pick what they thought were the juiciest episodes, and we all we wanted was continuity. And mm. so, like, the, the, remember there were, like, 500 round of VHSs, and they were all fucking wrong. Like, it was yeah. skipping yeah, it seasons just, and shit. They would just mix them up, however. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, it was maddening. And, like, and then, you know, like, we were talking about the classic, classic stuff. You know, you we, when we had our first talk where we kind of touched on this, the rights issues became a fucking nightmare. So, like, Star Blazers and, uh, you know, now it's like you just fucking download a torrent and you're good. You got the Comet Empire. Well, yeah, that's I mean, that's exactly what happened in Australia as well. Like it really sort of dovetailed with broadband becoming available in Australia in like the early and mid aughts. Finally, people had the bandwidth to download and stream anime in its airing order in like the original subs because everything that was appearing on TV was aired out of order or it was cut off like halfway through the season uh, and then they'd start airing it all over again. So it took us like three years to see a one arc of Dragon Ball Z because they'd get to like... <laughs> the part where Goku's charging his spirit bomb and then they'd start again from the start. So we never got to find out what happened 
yeah, with we, Fraser until like twelve months later. Yeah, that's what happened in the U.S. too when we yeah. ran. When when we were, I mean, that's just that's what happens when you have to like get all the actors in a room again and do, and do a dub. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, just, it's right. just an incredibly time-consuming process. And television, when anybody shows anything subbed on TV, ratings drop. Period. That's like a truism that's never changed in the entire history of TV, and it probably never will because TV. Unlike going and searching something out online, TV is a medium where they're presenting you something, they're putting it in your lap, and you may or may not want it. You may be just flipping channels. You may not be really wanting to engage. So putting subtitles creates a layer of engagement that maybe somebody doesn't want, and therefore maybe it's a barrier to them even saying, what is this thing about? Do I even want to see it? Which is why the only channels that ever are anything subtitled are channels that have tiny audiences anyway, because... They have nothing to lose. You have hooks into these fan bases that are so direct, like you don't get enough of a response and enough of a confirmation that it was worth it to do to do subs. I mean, there may it may get to a point where the audience is so fragmented in terms of the cable audience that just us doing something different is enough to pull enough of an audience to have enough of a number for us to make our, you know, to to basically have advertisers want to continue to give us money. But right now, Toonami is more of a gateway drug. Like, Toonami is primarily shonen and some seinen, and it's occasionally a weird show. We show music videos. We try to mix it up with interesting stuff. But we are showing the biggest, most mainstream titles dubbed because... Half of Toonami's audience on any given night is a person who's probably never seen that show before and is literally seeing it for the first time. You can type the word Toonami or Adult Swim on a Saturday night and half the responses are, what the fuck is this bullshit? I want my family guy. And the other <laughs> half is, oh my God, why won't they show the full uncut open of this episode of this show that I already <laughs> subbed, but I'm watching again because I want to watch it with all my friends and tweet about it at the same time. Like we are serving vastly different audiences at the exact same time and that's what happens when you're serving scale which is what we do at least for now so there may be a day when we can sub something and achieve that scale or enough of a scale that advertisers still want to keep us in business and keep the lights on but for now half of what we're doing is making new fans every day is kind of how like the way I've always looked at it is we are the gateway drug making new fans. And then we are also trying to serve loyal fans who want to watch a show that they already love or who have heard about a show but didn't have time to check it out. You've got the sites, you've got the communities, and you can self-direct and go as deep as you want. And it's cost-free because it's on the Internet. Yeah. Jake so, left Tsunami behind a long time ago. <laughs> well, so he's, I mean, he's sort of... We're, we're sort of setting you up here, Jake. You're sort of no, the no, problem. No. You're sort of the problem. <laughs> preventing preventing Jason from buying nice things. Yeah, I know, I know. No, but I love, like, I deeply identify with that because if Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z and then Evangelion weren't airing as dubs, uh, I never would have gotten into those shows because, like, you know, just channel flicking, like you said, landing on that show and being like, what the hell is this? If I found out when I was, like, 11 that it was subbed, I would have freaked out and changed the channel immediately. Now, obviously, I hate watching dubs because I find so much of the voice acting to be kind of inconsistent with what's happening on the screen. So we, ta um, we talked about this in the last one, Jason and I, we brought mm -hmm. this up. I actually, I went through my sub phase 
and now I back to liking dubs. I don't know why that is because I actually took Japanese for four years and was fucking horrible. I failed completely to learn this language, but um, I I did go through that period of particularly with the dramatic stuff. And there was a bad window where stuff like Vampire Hunter D and, and the really serious stuff, the dubs were so fucking bad. I mean, there's famous jokes and, and gifts that go around of the worst, you know, dub moments. There's that one was the guy in the car who's like, what does he say? You can jump on my fucking dick or something. What is that one? Jason? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, I mean, dubbing has gotten a lot better, but there are still bad dubs because dub actors aren't paid shit. Why should they be paid shit? Because most of the audience is stealing the shit for free before, before the actor even steps in the room. Ouch, this is getting real. I mean, I'm just saying, like, it's they're not, a dub actor is not going to be paid enough money to be a really good actor. What, so what are, they, what are they paying to get Anna Packin and, and Kirsten Dunst to do the Ghibli movies? Because they're, they're incredible. I still think that I still think the Kiki dub is. Oh yes, yeah. I mean. Oh they, my God, it's so yeah, those good. Are good dubs. They they don't pay them. They don't pay them much of anything because it's a Ghibli, and they're like, "We'll pay you scale." It's a Ghibli movie. You're going to be in a Disney film. It's yeah, you're, good you're literally you. part of history. Yeah, it's yeah, true. You're it, right. I got you. It's good for your CV, but like. I do think there are good dubs. I understand where Jake's coming from. Is why would you risk it? But I, as a viewer. Who are I'm definitely tied into dubs, obviously, but I watch some shows subbed and I watch some shows dubbed. And like Jake, I will look online and see what people are saying. And if people are like, this is the worst dub, I'll just watch it subbed. But if people are like arguing about the quality of it or if there's some sort of disagreement, I'll check out the dub first because my preference is to just be able to look at the beautiful animation and not have to spend time reading. The sub's never accurate anyway, or it's less it's accurate. Usually not yeah. It's more accurate. At, it's usually not these days any more accurate. It's usually, it's certainly in the old days was way more accurate. These days, it's not usually any more accurate. It's just a question of, do you find uh, the, the voice acting in English, do you find it grating? And you do you speak Japanese and think those performances are superior? They're usually not because Japanese voice actors aren't paid any better than dub actors. I mean, there are great Japanese voice actors and there are great American voice actors and there are great British voice actors. And it just all the it's like anything else. I mean, you getting a great dub is as rare as you getting a great album. But I think the average hardcore otaku or weeb is more like you, Jake. They're more like hey, I don't even want to fuck with it. I know I don't <laughs> like dub. I'm going to just go for the sub. Do you feel like the sub dub and the animation pieces of this, the whole presentation of it has been impacted by a huge volume of product and a very finicky fan base colliding? It's hard to say because I think the from everything I've read, the very finicky fan base. Also, I just will quickly clarify that I'm not a purist on the sub dub thing. I could definitely be more open to dubs, but like I'm, I'm glad they exist. Well, gotcha. they don't have and any. I, they don't have any with proper Australian accents, so that's a big no, problem. No, no, no. <laughs> um, and we can we can talk about Fully Cooly later, which is like one of my favorite dubs. Um, but I, I don't think this kind of finicky fan base actually has any impact on the way Japanese animators and anime producers are creating anime. Like I remember I was reading 
an interview with maybe like Gena Rabuchi or something, who's an incredible anime writer. He's written a lot of stuff that's indebted to Oshii's work and Ghost in the Shell and that sort of stuff. I think it was him who was saying that Japanese anime creators don't really think about Western audiences because the market in Japan is so huge that they don't need to. It's this sort of closed environment where... And I mean, Jason, you'll have a better perspective on this because, like, you actually interact with that business. But at least from what I've read, it doesn't seem to weigh on the minds very much. The people that I kind of interact with, the anime fans that I interact with, definitely love very elaborate animation. There's a huge, huge, uh, like, privileging of shows that look gorgeous and feel gorgeous. Everyone hates these shows that come out that are like your stereotypical light novel adaptation where the fight scenes are like just two slabs of bricks kind of falling on top of each other, um, which is like a lot of what Naruto was for much of its run. They had like a bunch of really beautifully animated fight scenes, but they were like few and far between. But there are these very much lesser known shows like Rolling Girls, for example, and this series that just ended called Flip Flappers, which... When I was watching Pat Labor 2 last night, the visceral way that, like, heads get blown off and, like, the mechs get shot at and those impacts are felt in very visceral ways. And I think that sort of 90s animation style has carried over into a lot of the action sequences in the critically acclaimed contemporary anime where there's just this immense level of detail to the point where there's a subsection of the anime fandom who are fans of what they call sakuga, which is like a Japanese term for animation, but in this context means like really elaborate, crisp animation. And there are tons of blogs and like um, GIF archives and stuff of all of these beautiful moments in anime with the animators credited on them. So not the directors or the writers or the producers or anything like that, but actually the people who animated those scenes. And I think it's kind of incredible that those people get that level of credit uh, in a way that doesn't happen in a lot of the bigger shows, I think. Uh, You know, there's a distortion there. Because one thing I'll say that I know Jason would recognize is those sequences, like the the multiple missile firings of the Robotech mechs and the, the launch of the cannon in Star Blazers, they were recycled constantly throughout the run of these shows. And the actual plot animation sucked. Like, if you go look at a lot of them, they, they had money shots. And that's oh, yeah. really that's yeah. really what you're talking about, because yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of the plot movement stuff was not paid nearly that level of, you know, just painter level, incredible uh, definition. I guess oh, the shows yeah. I'm talking about also are like typically, you know, 12 episode runs. And it's kind of the same thing that they, they are money shots. But because the runs are so short, uh, they appear to be so much more dense, whereas series like I'm unfairly harping on Naruto at this point. Like if you have a series that has almost, I think, over 500 episodes, obviously you can't maintain yeah. that density of animation. The way that that industry works, they do that across. I mean, like they do that with Miyazaki films. I mean, Miyazaki films have scenes that are, you know, obviously you're not going to notice as much in a Miyazaki film, but they have scenes that they farm out to. Ponyo has a ton of that. Yeah, I mean, I I when I was shocked when I first started working in the industry, you know, 15 years ago, and actually meeting the studio p- folks and the people that work at these animation studios, and like they they're all like, oh yeah, we worked on that Miyazaki movie, we did uh, this scene and this scene. Like you know, there's literally 
it's so time consuming to animate, even now with the techniques they have, that you literally, if you're mounting any kind of series, you're going to do it with more than one studio and you're going to have studios that specialize in certain things and you're going to go to them and go, well, we want them to do this because they work with color and they, they you know, and then we want these guys because they do CG really well. And then we're going to work with these guys because they do, you know, human figures really well. And like, you will spend more money on one scene because you know, it's super important to the story and you know that you need it to be a kick-ass action sequence, you know, so you'll spend more money. You'll budget for that. Just like a live action show would budget for, you know, a big finale sequence where a helicopter explodes or something, you know, it's the same yep. thing. One example where that was the most naked. I mean, I mentioned Ponyo, but it was a massive controversy from the moment it came out with Spirited Away, where they had compositing and CGI at a level that they'd never tried to jam it that tightly. The scene where she's running through the, the garden, right? Yeah. Maybe people didn't understand it, but it was always there. You do get to recognize, you know, specific, not just directors or writers, but you start drilling down and you really get to, you learn background artists and you learn animators and you follow their work because there's something intriguing about what they're doing. You know what I mean? And sometimes those are the people that end up becoming the directors or the creators, you know, that make the next really unusual piece of anime it, it's just it's insane and 20 years i've been doing it and i still don't feel that i have a good grasp on it and i still think that half the time anyone tells me half the time i put anything in toonami or check something out it's because a fan told me to it's not because i digging through 200 shows they bring so much to my attention that I don't even fucking know about, and I've been doing it forever. What percentage of this is like you navigating or having direct relationships with these studios to bring this stuff to the West? It's a good percentage. It, it started off not being so much, but now, now I know enough of the people at any studio so that when I hear they have something coming, or they'll tell me they have something coming. or like fully coolie? Fully coolie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like fully coolie. <laughs> Like, you know, Fully Cooley 2 came about because I am friends with Production IG because we worked on a show called IGPX and we licensed some shows from them. And we have just been friendly and worked together in various capacities for a decade. So when Fully Cooley came about, the rights came up and they said, are you interested in doing this? They came to us because they knew they remembered from 10 wow. years ago us ranting and raving and saying, if you ever want to make more Fully Cooley, please let us know because we will pay for it. And they remembered that and said, would you still want to do that? And we said, like hell yeah. 15 years later. Yeah. I mean, that's how long it took to sort the rights out because Fully Cooley was a very unusual bird in that it was created by two studios who basically just did it almost as a lark and simultaneously to sort of show off to each other how good they could be like the whole <laughs> the whole series was there is no expectation there's no you know we don't care if it makes any money we are literally doing this to make each other happy and to also sort of peacock to each other about how fucking good they both were it it came about in a way that is so unusual that the idea that they would ever go back to it blew their minds like why how could we go back to it like they couldn't even think about it. And so then it got tied up in the rights because it became a thing in the U S and it became a, a hit in Japan. And so then it was like, who controls it or how does it work? And so there was a lot of back and forth for years and years. And eventually once those rights got settled, they came back to us and said, 
Would we want to be a part of it? The reason we want to be a part of it is because it was such a unique, wonderful thing. And we feel like not that we can make the same thing, but that we can do something different that maybe can aspire to be as good. That's a really tall order. That's like saying, oh, I really liked Empire Strikes Back. I'm going to make another one just as good as that. Like it's I am aware of how we're tilting at a windmill to even try. But I just feel like given the opportunity, you can't not try. Jake? My first question is, uh, is Gynax still involved? No, Gynax, I mean, Gynax basically doesn't exist anymore. So all of the, like, the Gynax personnel who worked on Fooly Cooly are involved. Yeah. But Gynax as an entity isn't involved. Suramaki, who was the original director, is involved, but he is not the director. He is basically the creative director overseeing it. Uh, But the the original character designers on board, the original, some of the original writers... The original mech designer, like a lot of the original people. But the other idea is to bring in new people and new voices and new perspectives because we don't want to remake Fooly Cooly. We want to make a new Fooly Cooly, if that makes sense. I, I think it's incredible because, like, when Fooly Cooly came out, this, like the studios you're referring to, like we were talking about the kind of masters of anime before, this is like the studio responsible for Evangelion and the studio responsible for Ghost in the Shell, like two of the biggest things to ever happen to anime in history, coming together to make this six episode OVA, which is just like so fucking strange. Uh, and everyone I've tried to show it to is just like, what is this? But I, I, it blew me away the first time I saw it. Like I only saw it a few years ago, but um, I had kind of an Evangelion moment with that as well. Just opening my eyes to the fact that uh, I'd been watching a lot of like really beautiful and interesting and to some extent complex shows, but fully coolly opened my eyes to the fact that anime can be kind of abstract and impressionistic and really weird. And it primed me for a lot of the shows that uh, I've gone on to like really love. That's awesome. That's kind of what it did for me, which is why we were so passionate about trying to make, you know, when the rights became available, trying to make more of it because we ran it in the US. We, we've run it on Adult Swim for over 10 years. I mean, we've run it tons and tons and tons of times. And it's not like it was a big hit. We just love it. We just love it that much. And, you know, there are a whole subset of anime fans that are kind of not happy that we're making new ones. And then there's another subset that are excited and hoping that it's good. So I'm simply trying to live up to that greatness, which is like a fucking terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one I mean, the the OAV for me, we call them OAVs over here, Jake, sure. um, that did it for me. I've mentioned it to you both is El Hazard. Um when that series came out, I was like, yeah, you know, there's ties to stuff like Rama and, and to historic manga character development and all that. But like the universe they made and like the the kind of like magic and the physics and the fact that they had like a drunken master character and all this stuff and, and that whole like uh, snow globe aspect to my favorite anime series was really perfected for me in the Magnificent World Nel Hazard, which unfortunately got watered down into the Wanderers. Yeah. And it really sucked. They burned it into a fucking serial, which totally ruined it. It's like Star Wars. You make this fucking universe that has all this shit to it, and most of it's only incidental, you know? And this is the co-creator of Tenchi Muyo, yeah. you know? Um, this is somebody who'd been around. I mean, Jesus Christ, he did fucking Thundercats, Jason. Yeah. Your reaction to FLCL to Fully Cooly is sort of, I think similar to what mine was with El Hazard. Like I went on the Wikipedia cause I've never seen it. And I looked at the premise and it's, it's kind of set up by like 
three people being taken out of ordinary life and transported into a fantasy world, right? Yep, just classic, you know, we start here, you're a kid in high school, you get the same life as every other kid in high school, and then you go over here, and, you know, everything's inverted, and there's bug people, and there's a, a princess, and there's, like, a transgender question with one of the characters. There's a living cat that's also bulletproof that you can fucking wear. <laughs> like, there's so much cool shit. And, and like, they had awesome, you know, like, they had the bad guy, you know, that was the jerk, the arrogant kid who wanted to be president of the fucking class and all that stuff. Just all those notes. They just jammed it all in. There's this show that aired last year, like the other kind of big series that aired last year. Um, it didn't quite like achieve the escape velocity of Yuri on Ice, but like among anime fans, at least was huge. It's this show called ReZero, which has a very similar premise, which is just like this loner nerd uh, one day like is transported to this magical world and he thinks it's like it's very postmodern it's like he thinks that he's in one of those animes and he's like cool now's the part where I unleash my secret magical power and I save the princess because as this princess is getting mugged and he tries and he totally fails because he doesn't have any secret powers so it's, um, like a, it's like it's like a kick-ass twist on this sort of a plot yeah because it's been done like so many times at this of point course, um, yeah now it's it, it was actually parodied in another show Konosuba last year as well but um I was really Really hoping that ReZero would be self-contained in the way that you like El Hazard being. But uh, after the series, like a few episodes before the season ended, I realized that it was being adapted from this series of novels that has still not finished. There's like, oh my God. <laughs> like a dozen of these things and it just becomes more ridiculous and convoluted because I read a bunch of spoilers from people who have translated it. Historically, you had massive characters you had captain harlock you had you know what i mean right it was it was like based on sort of like a a, a major visual archetype as we've gotten into the the kind of like um anime and, and manga generally as sort of escapist literature or fantasy literature that we've we've in some way lost what was so much like you're yatsura you know you, you would you would make the character first and then just build some shit around the dynamic <laughs> you know resonance of this this character ranma all these things there are shows that do still do that like one punch man which jake maybe you've seen one punch man yeah, but yeah, like yeah. one punch man i think is centered around a very unique a character that is pretty unforgettable and hilarious it's a show that makes fun of shonen tropes essentially in a very self-aware way. It's wonderful. And he's one of those kind of characters that you just don't forget. Um, and then there are shows with lots of forgettable characters. Yeah, but I think that part of it is that anime has largely moved away from hard sci-fi for sure. And there are still hard sci-fi shows, but they're almost like horror tinged. They're not sort of space. There's not a lot of space operas. There's not a lot of you know, other than Gundam, like robot anime that's hard sci-fi. The whole thing seems to have been infected by a sense of uh, wanting to just see like types thrown up and jammed in and, and get a, a sort of story going that's familiar with with like tweaks on it and and less about the the inscrutable kind of singularity of of character design is that totally wrong on my part yeah <laughs> i mean uh, not maybe maybe not i mean like there are i don't know i think there are still shows that do do that i mean like i don't know what you've been watching that would make you feel that way so like there are shows like well, what it's you're like talking you know about. the guy so a character has blue hair does that make them stand out you know what i mean like it's it just seems no. the, sig the signifiers for the character development are not as 
you know, developed, uh, you know, as they had been when they were an image, uh, uh, this obsession in the in the creator's mind. And that's the whole question of if it comes from a manga that's been running for 20 years or. Yeah, I mean, it depends. Like there are some pretty unforgettable images in the more popular anime of the last five years. I mean, you know, if you look at Attack on Titan, maybe not necessarily the human characters, but you well, can. That, that seems to be the big one. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, you cannot forget the first time you see a Titan step over the wall, like that's an image you just don't, you know, that's an indelible image. So like, I just think they approach things differently now for sure. It's not all about one hero. It's more about ensembles and it's not hard sci-fi and it's not European fantasy. It's more fantasy in the way that like, there's a show called soul eater where there's an embodiment of like, there are weapons that are actually, people but they're a weapon so it's like it's fantasy but in the way in in the tr in its truest sense which is unreality as opposed to what we as westerners think of fantasy which we just think of lord of the rings derivatives dude that in and of ow, itself come on is, man you're fucking you're, this hurts just you don't have to take me all the way down <laughs> i'm just just, <laughs> just tell me i'm wrong okay god fuck <laughs> no i'm just saying Ouch. like i think I, <laughs> I think there's a reason you feel that way when you see it and i'm just trying to figure out maybe what that reason might be without without just it being you're out of touch which it's it's i don't think it's that simple no it is i mean it, I might, there, it might not be you know no, there, no. there are a lot of shows that still that air that aren't like fantasy in the tolkien sense but i mean are more like fluffy sci-fi shows almost yeah. Um, where that that all have the same formula and kind of like what you're talking about, Chris, where they'll have maybe like half of an interesting premise and then kind of just slot in these templates of characters and watch them go and they get like three episodes and some cool animation scenes in, but like the whole series is just a total nothing. Um, yeah, fucking where... deal, deal me back in, man. What's up? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a very familiar story where like some dude who looks kind of like average, but is vaguely handsome and kind of is a misanthrope goes to his high school and he walks in on this girl with bubblegum pink hair and she's undressing. Yeah, you get, you getting and... this shit, Jason, you getting all this. <laughs> <laughs> and then they spend uh, the next 12 episodes fighting with lightsabers. Basically. I think like sword art online is kind of the king of that, sort of yeah. anime like all of these shows are aspiring to be sought out online and sort of yeah. online receives a lot of criticism that i think is valid and a lot of criticism that i think is invalid they're kind of, it's like the nickelback of anime because it's yeah. so oh, popular so oh, widely hated wow um but every time every time a new sort of online series comes out it sucks me back in like they've got this movie coming out in a few months and i'm gonna watch it and i'll probably hate a lot of it but uh, the world is so interesting. Again, it's one of those kind of like normal people sucked into a fantasy setting uh, tropes, but they're sucked into like an MMO. Like a lot of these also ran shows, you couldn't pick any of the characters out, but Kirito and like Asuna, who are the kind of leads in Sword Art Online, are icons. They're anime icons. You immediately know who they are when you see them. Do you see there? Do you think that there's something that we're, that there's, that there, there's a chance for another kind of boom? Or do you think that we're kind of, kind of treading water in a way i just i don't feel i don't feel those big explosions of of crossover they haven't happened in a long time in the way that they kept happening every you know five years or so is that do you think that we're stuck in a way is there a rut right now or do you think that like we're just about i don't think we're going to see something like what happened in the 90s happen again i think that was partially driven by the home video boom 
in the U.S. Actually, in a huge way, driven by the home video boom. Oh, dude, it was ridiculous. And they could they cost them fucking ten cents to make those VHS tapes, and we paid fucking thirty bucks for them. Yeah, and I mean, now conversely, you can get easier access to more anime cheaper than ever right after it airs in Japan. But there are so many now that there's no. I mean, it's sort of like music distribution. It's the same thing. It's like now there's no explosion. That's a great cultural unification that everybody, there's no show that everybody rallies around that drives things that makes a bunch of new fans. It's just a whole bunch of people sort of circling themselves, if that makes sense, which no, I think it does. And that, that's sort of what I was saying. And sort of what I'm afraid of is the sense that they don't, they almost don't want, uh, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I, they don't. You're right. I run into them all the time. There are plenty of anime fans who hate Toonami because they think what I do is dumbing down an art form that they think should remain pure. I know this kid in Australia. He's so far up his ass. You <laughs> wouldn't believe it. Yeah, 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 that yeah, you're yeah. hurting that industry by doing that. You know, you're oh, not. Oh, Jake, you're getting fried now. He's, he's killing us both, man. No, I agree. I agree. I, yeah. Keep going, Jace. I, I mean. I can't, you know, it's hard. You can't blame a consumer for saying, I can find this free in five minutes. Why the fuck should I pay for it or wait for it to come on TV? There's not a good answer. But at the yeah. same time, do, when that consumer says, is what I'm doing hurting the industry? The answer is yes. There is no other answer. If they're making enough money at home off the feverish obsession with this stuff that's totally unabated, and if, if the West is going to be fickle, and kind of dink and duck and get in, you know, when there's something hot or whatever, this happened to work. It's not worth it for us to bend and try and keep them interested. Is that the thing that's keeping Jake contented? And at the same time, the industry's not dying for the fact that Jake can go and self-direct and, you know, ice stream or whatever the fuck the, um, you know, the it subs. may be, it may be, I mean, there may be, there may be a whole other aspect to it, which is, Knowing there's a global audience or knowing there's an audience waiting for it will allow people to get money to keep making it, even if it's less money than they ever made before. Like, did they, did, when, when the Blu ray high def bullshit happened and they shat out every fucking movie they could, I didn't see that happening with anime. Is that because I'm blind? Was it happening? The anime boom was VHS and DVD. When Blu-ray happened, anime was already losing its relevance in the West as compared to what it had been years before in terms of a broad thing. Way to go, Jake. You fucked it all up. <laughs> it's not your fault. No. All right. All right. So, I, I mean, I think about this a lot. And I think the, the parallels to the music industry, I mean, coming from the music crit background, like that's how I think about it as well. In the way that I started supporting so much more music, like materially when I had access to Bandcamp and shit like that, uh, I think anime doesn't really have something like that. And all, uh, this is a really popular topic of conversation in the anime fandom. And I don't think like anyone who really loves anime disagrees that we should pay for it. Uh, yeah. And I'm very happy to pay for it in the same way that I'm happy to pay for any of the music that I like, uh, whether that's like streaming whatever I can on Netflix or buying it directly. Unfortunately, I have like so little money that I can barely afford to buy music at the moment. But right. uh, part of the problem, and this kind of gets at what you were saying, Chris, is there's a kind of catch-22 where Japanese licenses don't realize there is an audience in Australia. I mean, there probably isn't a significant audience in Australia. So Crunchyroll Australia and even Netflix... 
just don't have the catalogs that their American contemporaries have. So the choice is either to like use a VPN and get Crunchyroll, which I don't really want to do, uh, or hope that Crunchyroll gets more in its Australian catalog and then I can subscribe. But the catch 22 is like, maybe I should subscribe now and give them that money to demonstrate there is an audience so that then they have that leverage to bring more shows to Australia. Um, so I, I, I don't feel good about it at all. I think it's terrible. And I acknowledge that I'm complicit in the problem, but, um, I don't know. It's it's hard to see a simple solution as well. There isn't. You're right. There's not. But well, when, I, Yuri, when Yuri on Ice takes off, right? Yeah. When that takes off, how does that happen? Like, Jake, when you see a response like, this is a fucking killer series. This is mega. We sh- yeah. this, is, this is major. What's the ripple there for the industry? I may be being kind of like optimistic in thinking this, but... Part of why is that it appeals to a lot of the contemporary sensibilities of Western audiences, like in terms of the things that they want in their art and entertainment. Like it has a very diverse cast who are written in ways that aren't tokenistic, but are actually really interesting. Like the nature of it being about world championship ice skating is that there are characters from all kinds of countries and they all have their own interesting personalities that aren't just like, I'm the Spanish guy and I dance the flamenco or whatever. Um, <laughs> they're, they're all really good. The animation is really good as well. Like that's a kind of a given, but the big thing is that it's incredibly gay. Like it's so gay. The, the whole like romantic plot is the like coach of this ice skater and his protege falling in love. Uh, and the camera is totally like female gazy almost uh, which is like heteronormative, I shouldn't say that, but in the sense that like there are these lingering shots on naked male bodies uh, and like really loving shots of these two guys kissing in moments of triumph and there's all this beautiful storytelling through the ice skating routines that are about kind of love and gender bending and that kind of stuff. That Those are the kind of attitudes that people like me and a lot of the people that we know on Twitter, for example, uh, have been craving in their art for a long time, like there's been this huge Overwatch controversy going on because the game Overwatch, like Blizzard, the developers just announced that one of their characters is canonically gay. And so yes, that's yes. a whole bunch of conversation about representation. Uh, and my takeaway from that is that a lot of people feel that representation is like the least you can do. It should barely even be considered uh, a cause of celebration because it, it's just, it's so simple. It's the least you could do. And Yuri on Ice does that in a way that is so unobjectionable and so kind of innocuous, like a normative almost, like it just exists in the world and it's part of the world. It's not made out to be some big thing. It's just true to life in that sense. So I think that's why Urian Ice is being talked about a lot in the West. Like, I don't know how it's doing commercially anywhere um, or what its viewership numbers are, but in the West, it is critically acclaimed because it touches on those things. So Jason, what does that do, Jason, on your side of the fence? when you see a show that's rising above room temperature. So looking at it from a broadcaster's perspective, that's when the show moves out of the farm leagues and might be ready for the majors. And you think about, will this maybe appeal to 2 million people a night? Will it appeal to people who aren't already the fan base that exists? 
a good example for us is a show we just started running that's been around for a while now, which is JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which is also yeah. I had been aware of JoJo's, had seen it, really liked it. And then just over the years, it's been more and more talked about till it reached a sort of critical mass where now we'll try it out and it's doing very well. So for us, these shows, the great thing I love about current anime fandom is these shows will often rise organically because they build a fan base of excited people who love the show and want to talk about it. That gets to me. I will then look into it and maybe we'll be able to put it in front of even more people. So really, just because something's popular doesn't mean it's better than other things. But it's one way that anime operates nowadays that it maybe didn't before, which is it is just sort of it build they build an audience on their own as a show. And then when you start hearing about it, it's because there was an organic upswell of people who are just excited about it, which is a cool thing and didn't exist when I was a kid. Man, when imagine it- if the music industry worked that way. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's a thing that we have now because of all this streaming stuff and because people can get access to all these shows. I can hear about a show that's just started airing that people are getting more and more excited about. The way you would hear about people getting excited about a U.S. show, but with the U.S. show, there's so much more marketing money and PR involved that half the time it's bullshit and half the time it's just being manufactured. But I think none of these anime companies have enough money to heavily market in the U.S. for any one show. Yeah, the fans have to do the fucking legwork. Right. So when you hear about a show organically, there already is a big enough fan base for you to hear about it. And that in and of itself means there's probably something worth looking into about that show. So this happens to me all the time. And sometimes I'll look at the show and go, well, I don't give a shit if people like it. I don't like it. Or I'll look at it and go, God damn, people were totally right. This is amazing. We got to get this show. You know, I mean, this says something to me about the nature of fandom and and how anime has protected. We talked about it already in this conversation. There is a there is a kind of protection of the fan base and a self-regulation that it just seems to be working. Maybe it's not making, you know, bajillions of dollars, but there's, there's such an awareness and I don't know. There's, there's something to it about how it is organically um, bubbling yeah. all the time. And, but, and when it gets a big enough peak, you hear about it. Almost no other media has this right now. Not even movies. Not, I mean, nothing TV shows. It's all based on marketers and advertising. Like yeah, you said, I mean, yeah, it's, and, and it's crazy to me that we have, it's a monoline thing. You're the only fucking venue that can take this to the West at a level where we can try it out. And yet you still get backbiting from the fucking purists who are like, you're fucking killing. <laughs> all the time. But I mean, that's, you know, that's the gig. I'm serving people who have never heard of the show. I'm not necessarily serving people who already love the show. Although I want the people who already love the show to enjoy watching it and want to talk about it with their friends. It doesn't, it's not like it ever gets sold out. There's never a point where like, you're like, oh man, that's so mainstream. Like, does that ever even happen? Uh, yeah, but only among like the kind of people who would like, who like frequent 4chan basically. Like the Moo board is pretty much parallel to the anime board on 4chan. Like everyone's just a hopeless snob. Um, but there are more moderate communities that are just as obsessed with Attack on Titan as anyone else is with 
whatever fucking anime that nobody's ever heard of. Jason, does your, I mean, without getting technical, does your outlay mean that you have to be, you're forced to be conservative? Or is it more like you need to know the referendum on the fan is so clear cut that like this is legitimate and it's going to work? The decisions, the programming based decisions for Toonami are made by like three people of which I'm one. And it's a cross between our individual tastes. So I like Gundam. Is there a new good Gundam series? You know, like that kind of thing. A cross between our tastes, between what our distributors or friends come to us and pitch. Like, hey, we're working on this show. It's called Space Dandy. Do you want to be a part of it? Hey, we're working on Fully Cooley. And then the third tier is the shows fans are talking about that we then look into and that we like. We would never... Like I have the luxury of not showing a show I think sucks because I work at a place where they don't make me just show whatever the most popular thing is at all times, although we do show most of the more popular stuff. It's a good mix of taking a chance on a show maybe not that many people know about, but that I think is really something special, or taking a chance on a show that I'm not 100% on, but that fans really love and say gets really good. And trusting them. The main thing for me, and the reason I wanted to have this conversation is because we barely touched on it when we talked about general, kind of like your involvement in music and everything. There's nobody in the West that's fighting this fight with the resources that you have. And it's fucking crazy to me that you're like listening to fan reaction like you're building consensus directly from these communities and what gets bubbled up to you. That is the purest fucking thing going and yeah you can't just do whatever you know sounds rad to you there has to be some fucking business-minded conversations that occur but i still think that's crazy fucking amazing and the idea that that anybody would have a problem with it or uh, that's just crazy to me i don't care how big a fan you are it's like there's literally nobody else to even complain to because no one else is even trying <laughs> well that's what I like to tell them, but they, they don't always want to hear it. <laughs> well, I'm telling them. No, I agree. I agree. Like you said before, Chris, like how can Jason not be the best actor in this whole thing? And I completely, I think he is. I think like all the things Jason just said in, in terms of like his metrics for whether an anime comes to Toonami are like examples of the ways I think people can use their influence for good, whether it's in anime or music or whatever, like it, people kind of, furthering the sharing of this thing that I really love. And you listed like a couple of the barriers to that sharing, like distribution and licensing or whatever. But the other one is that a lot of anime, because it's targeted at teen boys is impossible to show any of my friends because it appeals to this, like just gross juvenile bullshit. Uh, like what I was saying before, like the kind of emo dude walks in the girl getting undressed. That's in the first like five minutes of so many series. Yeah. And if I show that to my girlfriend, she'll immediately shut off. Even though like if I, there's a series that I love that I kind of mentioned before, Bakamonogatari, which is fucking amazing and so strange and good. Um, it's kind of like the animal collective of the anime world in that you've got oh, I'm people. I'm fucking sold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got people who think it's like, uh, pioneering and brave um, uh, and really interesting, which is what I think. Uh, I don't think that about Animal Collective, but I think that about this show. And then you've got other people <laughs> who think it's total hipster nonsense because it's really like slow paced for a lot of the arcs uh, and it's really talky, but it's also really, really beautiful. Um, and one of the problems with this show is that its main character, this teen dude, 
uh, is like obsessed with every girl that he comes across. And there's some critical analysis that I've tried to do to engage with that, where the show is in part, touches on a lot of stuff, but like part of it is kind of teenage horniness. And I think it does this in ways that are really crass a lot of the time, but sometimes really, really well. But regardless, I can't show that to anyone who I know because they're going to see that and be like, this is fucking stupid and gross. Uh, so for someone like Jason and Toonami to have that kind of selection process and show people that anime isn't all just like hypersexualized young women and gross pervy dudes, uh, means a lot to me because it means that people will start to understand all the great things about all the great shows and engage with it critically when those problematic moments occur. All right. So to close this out, Jason. Yes. Two things. One. You had Battle Angel Alita way too fucking low, bro. <laughs> but, there was more, it was it was two people making the list, so we had to find the middle ground. That's all. So every one of the reasons we did this is because uh, Jason contributed to a huge top one hundred anime uh, films, you know, releases, major releases, OAVs included, uh, for Paste Magazine. It is crucial that you go read this. He did heavily contribute, but there were other people involved. Um, but what I'd like to do, and I think it's totally fucking appropriate, is um, I'd like to send us off with you kind of talking about where Toonami's at. What is Toonami looking at for anime and for this medium and for the network in 2017? Well, thank you both for the kind words you've said. We've done, we've shown plenty of crap too, but I appreciate the the, <laughs> the kind words. Um, I mean, so this year's for Toonami. I'm really excited, actually, more than I've been in a while because we've made it to our 20th anniversary. So in March, we're doing a mini series with Oshi, which is going to be a live action CG hybrid and will also be subtitled. So it'll be the first like extended subtitle we've ever done. So that could be terrible or it could work out great. But either way, when you have the opportunity to work with Oshi, you don't turn it down. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited about Fully Cooley, which I continue to work on, and we don't have a release date for, but we're going to work on it until it's done, whenever that is. And Samurai Jack is coming back. No! Uh, yeah, Sam Jack, final season, um, starting, so I can't say when yet, but this year. That's a big thing for us, because we don't just show anime, although we're mostly anime. You know, we're getting, starting this Saturday, Dragon Ball Super, which... You know, again, it's Dragon Ball. It's the biggest, arguably besides Pokemon, the biggest anime show in the world continues to be, continues to be our highest rated show, continues to pull in gigantic amounts of people who then stay to watch whatever we put after it, which in this case is going to be a Gundam show. So, I mean, I'm just excited because 20 years later, I'm still putting giant robots in front of people and being able to put crazy ass animated music videos on the air and talk about video games and just generally expose people to more of the shit that got me so excited when I was a young person and continues to be able to be something that excites me now. 